Radio Nasties A through Z with Death by DVD. Blood rights and bloody wounds. Just keep repeating it on their podcast. Just keep repeating it only upon This is Death by DVD. I am your host, Alexander Nash, and with me as always is my co-host and phony Spanish lover, Hank. It's true. I am a phony Spanish lover. My true name is Arturo Longjohn. That's not what the character's name is. What are you talking about? I don't know. I didn't get the reference, so I just ran with it. It's a Bloody Moon reference. Oh. Yeah. We'll insert the sound of chirping crickets here. All right, whatever. Welcome to Death by DVD. <laughs> this is the oh. Video Nasties with Death by DVD. Wait, that's not the name. It's uh, the Video Nasties. Part 4, Bloody Moon and Blood Rites, the dreaded Andy Milligan episode we've been putting off for about a month now. I hope to God. I'm pretty sure it's the only Andy Milligan episode. Let me. I don't think there's any more that are on any sort of nasties list. No, we should be clean. This should be the only time we talk about Andy Milligan on this show ever. Unfortunately, the man had some somewhat reasonable, watchable movies, but not the one that we're going to be talking about tonight. And I no, gotta take he that didn't. back. You're a fucking liar. See, I was. You're I'm. I'm taking thing. it back right now. I wouldn't say reasonably watchable movies. Let's drop reasonably. He's got some uh, watchable movies, but that too comes with a little asterisk next to it, like watchable after a fifth of Jack Daniels, watchable after two Xanax. Something has to give with Andy Milligan. I will give him this much. There was footage captured on film that you can visualize on your television, but that's about the extent of it. And even then, I'm not so sure that some stuff was filmed. And with uh, how rough this is starting, regardless, I find some charm to Andy Milligan, and we'll talk about that, and we'll, we'll get into the meat of that later, because we certainly are going to have to pad this episode, because... I don't. I wouldn't say you're, you know, not a Jess Franco fan, but you certainly aren't on the top of uh, the buying list for Severin picking up any of his uh, movies right now. And I just, I guess, being candid, I've not seen a lot of Jess Franco. I've seen some of the major movies that Witchfinder General knockoff he did with Christopher Lee, the the Judge, something or another, uh, the Bloody Judge. I think it's the Bloody Judge. Obviously, of uh, uh, Venus and Furs and Vampire Lesbos, which. Everybody loves the soundtrack for it. It even has an appearance in a Quentin Tarantino film. I think Jackie Brown? Yeah, it's Jackie Brown. I will say this about Jess Franco. I've seen a good handful of his movies. It's not that I, well, dislike Jess Franco. I just don't get Jess Franco, and I don't particularly enjoy Jess Franco movies. They're just kind of blah to me because it's it's a lot of... 1970s, early 80s, kind of artfully made porn. But yeah, I mean, hardcore and softcore. There's no, I mean, kind is about it. The man made a lot of fucking. Well, even films. his horror movies feel like that. I mean, yeah. he just everything he shot was. It, it seemed in his head anyway was the for the uh, express purpose of eroticism, and it's just like, yeah, so these things aren't erotic you're making an erotic zombie movie that's uh, that's not necessary it seems franco liked to say sexy a lot that they were either sexy movies or they weren't sexy movies and i guess you have to traverse that line somewhat carefully 
But I, uh, you know, the little I do know about him and his career throughout the um, late 60s and the early 70s, his, his art was very experimental and things like Vampire Lesbos is a trip to watch. It's very psychedelic. It has a very funky vibe to it. And again, to note the soundtrack, um, it, it's just awesome if you're into that sort of thing. And again, it is very erotic. It's kind of greasy and dirty, as I like to say. He made some okay hammerish films. He he produced uh, from the '60s into the early '70s. I I would say his strongest work, and what makes him stand out and have a, a special note, I think, is his style. And he has kind of an always moving camera. His cuts are very unique. As a filmmaker, I think his artistry, especially in this era, was pretty unique, and that's why. He got kind of pushed, and also uh, his ability to just make 20 movies in a month. The man could, you know, it was like a rabbit fucking. He could just produce and produce and produce and get the job done, whether it was, uh, you know, on par or not is a different discussion, but you've got to give some credit to somebody that can work constantly like that, uh, you know, like Joe Diamato. I guess uh, for me, like my hypothesis is, sure, the man made four or five decent films, but he also made like 152 films. So the fact that he was able to, by happenstance, make four or five good ones does not impress me much. He was a like a tremendous cinematographer. He knew how to shoot a film. He knew what he was doing as a filmmaker. It's just not always did he make anything like things that were interesting. They're just kind of bland. And that would be. I'd say the uh, the key word for tonight's show is both these films are just really bland. Like this is prime example of not being able to get off your fucking phone while watching a movie. If I can't get off my phone and I can't stare at the screen for more than two or three minutes without like, eh, let's see what's going on somewhere else that's not here in the headspace of this movie right now. It's just there's just not enough going on. But let's I mean before we start. Let's get into the actual concept of the show here because we got to divide them up evenly, and we're going to talk about uh, Blood Rights First, Andy Milligan's film from 1967, also known as The Ghastly Ones, which is the preferred title. The reason it's coming at this point in the list is because when it was released in uh, the UK during the 80s on video, it was titled Blood Rights, um, which is a terrible fucking title. The Ghastly Ones is goddamn amazing title, and it has probably one of the greatest grindhouse era trailers that ever existed because the phrase it's going to be the stomach shocker of your life is uh, is used which i always found to be just great narration in a trailer what the fuck is a stomach shocker but eh, that's what the ghastly ones apparently is um and that's what I, for me the ghastly ones has been for numerous years it's it's a trailer it's a good trailer it's a fun trailer um the the writing for the narration is kind of amazing throughout the whole thing. But when you break down and actually watch the movie, there's just not a lot to watch. And that is my biggest problem with Andy Milligan. Uh, also, him, him as a filmmaker, I mean, he was a fucking lunatic, which Hank will get into here, I'm sure, shortly. But he shot movies terribly. He didn't have the best filmmaking skills. Um, he was obsessed with doing period pieces and costuming. So it all take like most of his stuff took place in the 1800s. And you have a lot of just dialogue because dialogue costs nothing. So he would just write a bunch of inane bullshit dialogue of people talking just to have something to shoot. And in a lot of times in the ghastly ones, there's a lot of shots in the movie where we're going through the house. We're giving kind of a, a, a tour of this house that we're going to be in the rest of the film. And, 
we don't cut. We just kind of have like some weird Paul Greengrass handheld shit the entire time. There's sometimes you can't tell what's going on because it's just Lucy Goose camera, just like just not focused on anything. We're just kind of just recording what's going here. We're just filling what's going on because I don't have the time, money, or effort to set up actual shots. We're going to go out of this room that's actually well lit. We're going to go into a dark room, and then we're going to go into another room. And that's another thing about the ghastly ones is you can hear on the audio track uh, Andy Milligan directing his actors at times. Lay down. Lay down. Okay. Uh, okay. A cut. Also, if you listen very closely, you can hear the camera, uh, which is something I'll, I guess I can slide into here real quick. Andy shot on an Aracon camera. If you don't know what that is, it's because it's not used for film at all. It's a newsreel camera. Uh, and it kind of is what those traditional cameras you think of from old Hollywood. They have the big bunny ears where you could put film canister into them. And one of the reasons Andy liked to use this is because it was cheap, and it had a feature where you could end up rolling and running cans of, like, 1,500 uh, feet of film. So instead of having to really cut, he could just shoot the entire thing, and uh, something Andy Milligan was very guilty of that's generally a big no-no is he, would, he didn't really do, like, work prints. He would just edit whatever he had as a master, and it, you can really see it with cigarette but there aren't cigarette burns you can just see where he glued film to film and absolutely didn't care and his reasoning for the period pieces i also find kind of interesting he felt that it would make his movies absolutely timeless so if he shot a movie in the 70s but it was supposed to take place in the 1870s in 20 years if it still had drive-in circulation the audience wouldn't find it so dated, but it's still, you can really tell when these movies still really are shot. Dated. It's still incredibly, even for the era, it feels dated. Yeah, and he would mostly shoot on uh, either short ends or like newsreel uh, film, which would sometimes have two different styles of capturing the audio. And that's in almost all of his movies, it's either dubbed or just some of the most atrocious audio. You can hear the camera, you can hear him. And most of the time, it's because the film had a magnetic strip that would run and capture the sound but this device was behind the it was somewhere inside of the camera so it would end up capturing the audio but it would be about two seconds faster so if you cut somewhere sloppy which he was very infamous for sloppy cuts it would completely screw up whatever the audio was hence why almost all of andy milligan's films are uh, not just unwatchable but unlistenable but this is coming from somebody who's been just sitting and watching andy milligan films lately so i don't know if they're unwatchable <laughs> well, one of his techniques, especially in a scene of violence, um, and I have it on good authority. This is what uh, author Stephen Thrower talks about it in, in some interviews, that even in Andy's scripts, he would have the words swirl camera written. So when you get a scene of violence, since he didn't have any money to do like proper special effects or do like let's substitute it with something cheap, like just – like energy. So he just swirl the camera and it would actually be written in the script of swirl camera. So a lot of the scenes of violence, you can't even tell what's going on because we're just kind of moving the camera around kind of like, you know, modern filmmaking where if we have an action scene, we can just cut it the fuck up and just move the camera around. So it looks like something's happening. And I, I guess Andy Milligan innovated that. Uh, so he will forever be remembered as a great filmmaker. But as far as Andy Milligan's stories are concerned, Sometimes he can have something that's fucking ludicrous. Like uh, the plot of blood is nuts. There's a lot of di there's vampires, there's uh, man-eating plants. There's a lot of different things going on At in some blood. Point, there's almost always incest. That's a favorite of Andy yes. Milligan is, is bizarre incestual plots. And it gets out like even from his very beginnings with vapors, there's a odd nod to it. 
it's just a constant theme throughout his entire career. But that's something about Andy Milligan. Him as a guy is almost more interesting than his films, and it's almost a shame. His, his movies were never as crazy as his actual life. If that had been the case, it, you know, we would just be like H.G. Lewis, Roger Corman, you know, kissing his ass. And he's very inventive in the same right as some of these guys. And uh, you know, Fred Olin Ray said this. I'm paraphrasing here. But he said Andy Milligan is somewhat similar to guys like William Castle and Alfred Hitchcock. And it, it, that's in the sense that most people go out of their way to see a William Castle film or an Alfred Hitchcock film because of the title, because it's Hitchcock, that you're in it for that. And that's why most people end up hunting down Andy Milligan. It's not because you read the synopsis or heard about the ghastly ones being amazing. It's because you heard about how incompetently baffling uh, made these movies are and just how ludicrous this guy was. And, and you go into it kind of expecting absolute psychotronic insanity, which was his life. He had a, and from his birth, he had problems with his mother, which really shows up kind of fruity and throughout his entire career as a, as a filmmaker, very misogynistic. Uh, was in the service. He moved to New York City, uh, Staten Island. I think he was born in Minnesota. Ended, uh, I think he was raised in New York City, but he ended up owning a dress shop. He had multiple off-off-Broadway theaters. Then he got into film. Then he moved to L.A. and started another off-off-off-Broadway because it's L.A. theater. Uh, his life was constantly in motion, just a very chaotic energy nonstop, and it's just if that energy could have been captured on, onto what he was trying to do. could have just harnessed that energy a little bit and, like, yeah, use it not for just your like, art. You can feel the energy in his films because they are so just, there is a lot of motion, but that doesn't mean they're, like, interesting. They're, like, Unfortunately, incredibly so. boring. And I found the ghastly ones on, like, a recent attempt at a rewatch because I will admit right now, I did not finish it. I just got too goddamn bored watching it. Oh, it's it. so hard. But, like, the, like the, problem with the plot of the ghastly ones is it's kind of a typical scooby-doo plot of a bunch of people getting invited to a mansion because they're going to be there's going to be a reading of a will and people someone's offing them one by one but not in particularly interesting ways it does have some scenes of violence it has a pitchfork death it has uh it has a decapitation that's well, the one at the beginning is, is the best. I think that's what pulls you in, and you end up going, all right, I'm going to watch this a little bit more, because you get this hunchback who later on has weird buck teeth, but he didn't in the beginning of the movie, which is odd. And he uh, graphically murders someone and tears their eye out, but it's just this goofy, big plastic eye that you would get out of the back of an old EC comic, and it's hysterical. And that grounds you a little bit, and you get the fake sense. We talked about this on the last episode. You get this fake sense that, well, I think I might be allowed to laugh. I think this is something I can laugh at. But no, it was not made to be funny whatsoever. It's not made to have any uh, comedic value at all. But as you progress, you get obviously gay male leads just struggling to have uh, romantic scenes. All of it's just so poorly made together because the plot is these three girls, women, have to have a sexual, sensual weekend with their family to inherit money okay that's a really odd request so we're already cooking with gas right off the beginning but it's like laughing gas it's crazy gas and yeah and it just doesn't lend itself to do like a very narrative plot at all it kind of just jumps around so much that you really can't follow and you're not particularly entertained because you're not getting into any of these characters because they're just not interesting. And I think a lot of that for me personally has to do with the period piece aspect of it. 
It also has to do with the fact that Andy Milligan does not know how to write a goddamn script, even though a, a good portion of his films are about the dialogue. Dialogue is not interesting. It's just kind of mundane nonsense bullshit. Well, that was even, um, to an extent, a, a big fault with him, that he would write the dialogue scenes and the rest of the script would just be kind of ambiguous notes to, to, to work around with whatever they were doing. So he would have this sense of security and having the dialogue and nothing else and just kind of arrange whatever was happening based on that. And that's just so chaotic. Uh, I mean, there's some some unique, I, I guess, uh, talent in being able to do that, but most of it was all Milligan doing it. So, I mean, he was running sound, he's directing, he's trying to get these actors to come up with something that's not on the script, he's cutting, it's just way too much stuff for one person to do. I mean, he really was a one-man show, which you gotta kind of tip your hat to that, but... He was a really bad one-man show, so it's just like a guy blowing on a trumpet, beating drums, and you know, screaming. It's just, it's insanity. Yeah, it's 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 noise music. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's death grips. But like, we, me, and Hank have been having a conversation all week about just kind of film in general, and the way I relate to this movie is. He's not a big fan of the movie Spookies. He hates the movie Spookies. <laughs> um, I, I would say hate's a strong word, but I, I greatly— You just have no affinity for it. You yeah. just don't care about it particularly. It, it doesn't do nothing for me. But to me, like, it's not that the movie does anything for me, I, but I think the story of the making of Spookies is incredibly interesting, of how it got to the point it did and all these different things. And I think, for me personally— with Andy Milligan movies, that's what's interesting. The man behind the camera. It's almost like a psychiatric paper on insane filmmaker. <laughs> and I find that aspect of it interesting. I find his life interesting. I find how he uh, related to cinema interesting. But the final product to sit down and watch, I don't find interesting at all. I find it very boring. And so I'm just not an Andy Milligan fan, and I just it, it baffles me when I hear of uh, some people I, you know I respect that just like oh no, I love Andy Milligan films. I'm like what? What do you? Lo how do you sit down and watch them? They're so boring. Yeah, for sport, for fun, I don't understand it. But uh, trying to at least curate a knowledge on uh, film history or having a passion for it, I definitely think Milligan deserves some observation. And like I noted, some of his porns um like flesh pot on 42nd street they're interesting they're watchable i don't know if it's sold out or not but it previously was available by vinegar syndrome and there is a book pretty much one of the only great sources of knowledge on uh, andy milligan called the ghastly ones by jim mcdonahue which i believe is actually in print right now but i wanted to make note of something i found that just i guess it kind of grinded my gears a little bit i found this article by cinefear video about uh andy milligan which turned out to be somewhat informative and had, you know, a lot of uh, hate, pretty much, toward young independent filmmakers. Uh, it, it's a very odd article that I, I kind of want the audience to go and find and judge for themselves, because it's, uh, I don't want to throw things around like racism, but it's almost borderline sexist and offensive to the entire, I don't know, film community and queer community, but at the same time, mildly informative but that itself kind of is a a good summary of andy milligan's career a lot of people found his art offensive because of its incompetency and a lot of people are quick to condemn it and trash it and it, you know say it's not art and it's unwatchable and for a, a lot of argument yeah you could really you know push me into that field but at the same time just from a history standpoint and trying to understand this guy, I mean, you look at any artist that you can have uh, an affinity for, like Van Gogh, and you want to know about their lives, or Jim Morrison, a rock star, anybody, 
And once you see an Andy Milligan film, I think that's what plants the seed. You know, you got into this because you heard about how crazy he was and you watched the movie and it's not even like you're disappointed. It's not like the Fendley movie uh, snuff uh, that you wait for the entire end just to see this kind of lackluster, uh, almost Chevy Chase movie like uh, schlock scene. You're just kind of baffled and confused as to how what you just witnessed was was made so poorly and, and what happened. And I mean, there's so many reasons like using the newsreel camera and. All sorts of shit. But, you know, Andy Milligan made over 40 films, 30 of which were, were released in theaters, which is definitely a testament to, uh, I don't know, him just working nonstop and having some sort of vision. It's just a shame the vision isn't entirely clear. I mean, and I don't want to just say, you know, like this guy's straight up incompetent, but with all the faculties he had, uh, being able to take advantage of producers that would give him money and help get distribution. I mean, he had pretty much 20, 30 years nonstop at the drive-in. Triple features. You know, Milligan movies played nonstop. And with all of that, you just would assume at some point that he would have sharpened his skill a little bit or would have invested in a better equipment at some point. Uh, Dave Dakota tells a pretty interesting story where he almost got to meet Andy Milligan. That He uh, was renting equipment from a guy who was also renting to Andy, and the guy pretty much told him, like, I don't like him. He's a cranky, cheap bastard. And that's what most people end up having to say about Andy Milligan in general. But I think there is something else to him, uh, not just almost a kitsch, I don't know, a dumb enjoyment. But I think there is something to him. I just honestly, I can't tell you what. I, can't, I could never put my finger on it, and I don't think anyone ever will. But I would suggest picking up uh, Jim McDonough's The Ghastly Ones. You can get it from Barnes & Noble. All right, let's get into the pedantic, dumb information that I always dig up for these shows. And um, the, um, the video that you're looking for, if you're collecting video nasties, the label it's on is Scorpio. And um, I couldn't find a pre-certificate on the internet of the last time a pre-certificate blood rights sold for and what price it went for. So I have no idea. So you might have a hard time tracking down blood rights. Um, but as I always read from The Art of the Nasty by Nigel Wingrove and Mark Morris, I will read the selection that they printed and uh, where this film is at now as far as the BBC or not the, B the BBFC um, censorship because some of these films go back for certificate certification and can um, be uncut now. So let's see what they've written. Uh, a laughable excuse for a gore movie from Staten Island based Andy Milligan who preferred to shoot period pieces so they wouldn't date. There you go, Hank. But a the UK release was inexplicably missing one minute and 35 seconds of footage, which any viewer would have been thankful for. One of the very first videos to feature a double-sided sleeve. So they cut out almost two minutes, a minute and 35 seconds of what? I don't know. There's barely any violence. I guess any scene of violence. And as far as I'm concerned, this was probably caught up in the video nasty scandal because it had blood in the title. Um, both covers, the reversible sleep covers, one was a, um, a pitchfork murder getting ready to happen, the pitchfork murder, and the other one was a uh, drawing of a knife in a hand. And for some reason, we've talked about this before, the, the BBFC was obsessed with imitatable violence and home, um, home uh, like gardening tool 
murder things because they I, I think they just assumed if somebody saw a chainsaw in a film and saw somebody using it to, to kill someone well maybe i can do that it was a yeah. weird thing they had with it's absolutely the insulting. kind of weaponry you used to kill people was just like well we can't have that in the film well too a, a big thing that it's saying is you know like peter kruger was one of the scotland yard detectives that sat down and watched every single video nasty so you mr peter kruger you have adequate training so you must have some bigger brain than the rest of the English people because you were able to sit down and watch all of these movies, but you didn't go home and murder your wife with a drill. So the assumption is that the majority of the people in the UK were of lesser intelligence than those that had a, an official point in viewing these movies because it's just ridiculous that one person would watch it and this would trigger something and another person would watch it and it wouldn't. But I'm not you know, saying violence hasn't come from horror movies, but again, there's no defense for the video nasties and, and what just the fact that some of these movies are still banned or that the ghastly ones was ever banned it's the, the again a reason that milligan got a lot of success and fame is having titles of banned movies and video nasties i just don't understand how you could take something like the ghastly ones where blood rights serious at all it all just seems like a lark even like when you're watching the film but nobody seems in in the uh, context of the film itself no one seems to be taking it that serious so i don't understand how you could w sit down and watch this and go oh this definitely should be banned why because there's a there's a head and a covered dish on the table i mean it's just and it's like just like a magic trick it's just somebody sticking their head through a table it's not even like a graphic effect there's barely any graphic effects oh wait a minute there was animal cruelty in it. That could be another reason. The, the whole rabbit scene. That could be another reason why it got banned. Which, too, uh, follows in the next movie, Brief Scenes of Animal Cruelty. So, yeah, I mean, that's another thing that they always banned movies for in the video nasties era was any sort of animal death. Real or not real a lot of the times. Even some of the most ridiculous effects um, would get banned. But I'm pretty sure they just, you know killed a rabbit in this one i don't think they bothered to do any sort of effect yeah i don't think it was you know some cannibal holocaust style genius of awful murder to make you feel emotion i think they just needed something for that sequence uh, in short though i think out of anything as we've you know digressed and gone through with this milligan is more interesting than andy milligan movies and it's a weird road that you can traverse down to if you want to, but really just check out the trailer for the ghastly ones and enjoy that because it's all the key stuff. That's that can be said for a lot of Andy Milligan. Check out the trailers, see how those uh, fit for you. But if you do truly choose to venture down this path, it's it, it's really interesting. The more and more you begin to learn about this guy, and he really did have he had a remarkably chaotic life. It just uh, I think energy is the best way to describe it. Just constant energy, just always doing something, very eventful. And unfortunately, he passed away in 1991. He was a uh, you know a casualty of the AIDS pretty much Holocaust, I guess you could say. And uh, he died very young. He was 62 years old, and who knows what the 90s and the, the tape era would have brought to Andy Milligan. It would have certainly been a bizarre feat. It would have been weird to see 90s Andy Milligan. I will say this. His film Carnage is not god-fucking-awful. It's, like, it's somewhat tolerable, and it kind of flows and feels like a real movie. All the acting sucks. The story kind of sucks. I mean, it's kind of a uh, it's a haunted house type picture, but it's it's a pretty competently made film overall. And I would say that's for for my purposes would be his best movie, even though I still think it's terrible. 
Yeah, I will give a brief amount of defense to the Rats Are Coming and the Werewolf. His both of his uh, British films. He only shot two movies in in England: uh, the Rats Are Coming and the Werewolves Are Here, and the Body Underneath. And both of those are somewhat watchable. Again, you made a good point with these are phone movies. Even if it's a game you've not played in nine months, you're gonna end up digging something up on your phone, deleting old emails. It, you just want to get the time pass. Well, I like. I think a lot of Milligan's work could like actually work for me if um it's kind of be kind of a weird reference but uh what, what is this uh frederick hobbs i believe is his name the guy who directed uh, god monster of indian flats and um alabama's ghost which both are like rough around the edges movies but they're full of so much like oddness and satire that they work on an incredible level they work. I, I actually love those movies because of how kind of weird and satirical they are. And I think that's what Andy Milligan movies are missing. There's just no satire. And I don't want a bunch of like, you know, winking at the camera type stuff. That's not what I mean. But like just really like kicking the shit out of an idea or a concept. And Milligan doesn't seem to be interested in that. He just seems to be more interested in just putting his weird fever dreams on film and just not very well at that. You know who apparently is a huge Andy Milligan fan? I, I think they claim to be the world's biggest Andy Milligan fan. Oh, God. Nicholas Winding Refn. That's a weird bit of trivia. Yeah, absolutely bizarre. I was listening to, oh, and you know, as Alexander Nash does, I, I like to try and tell you guys where you can find some reasonable copies of these video nasties. Fred Olin Ray's company, Retro Media, put out a three-disc set of Milligan movies with the body underneath... Um, the ghastly body ones. underneath, or is it the body beneath? The body beneath. I'm sorry, the body okay. beneath, and uh, the ghastly ones, and I I don't remember the third on it. I didn't get that deep into the disc. Uh, it's got a brief commentary from Fred Olin Ray, and if this tells you anything about Andy Milligan, is he begins this commentary with I, I can't do this full length. I can't sit and get through this entire movie. So I've got some stuff to say. Eleven minutes. It runs eleven minutes until he gives up. <laughs> Way to go, Brett. Yeah, he, he, he bailed when I did. He had some stuff to say, and he got it out and said it. But uh, the body also has a commentary by Dave Dakota, which is he's always a pleasure to listen to, and he has a lot of facts and a lot of fun trivia. So I would suggest hunting that down. I bet you can find it on Amazon or check Retro Media. It, that, it's a good introduction because you get three movies for like six bucks, a commentary, so you don't have to suffer through the entirety of it. And there's a, a nice featurette that has some cool educational shit on Andy Milligan. Rest his chaotic, chaotic soul. <laughs> That's, uh, I guess, the best way of putting it. All right. Are we going to move on to our next entry in our basically just alphabetical order? <laughs> there is That's the only order we're doing this in. It's just alphabetical. Um the next film on the list is a director we're going to be talking about a lot because he has several different movies on the video nasties lists, and that is Jess Franco. And again, not a huge fan of Jess Franco movies. My my uh, brother is. He loves Jess Franco. I don't get it. I don't understand why you can get into Jess Franco films. He's made again, like he's made maybe four or five really good movies or decent movies in his career spanning like 50 years of making a, a like 300 movies but that those are not that's not a good ratio at all 207 movies in total as a director and over 100 as a writer but bloody moon from 1981 is one that uh Jess Franco himself will say he wasn't particularly proud of and most of that comes down to lies and deceit he was given a lot of promises told a lot of things to sink him into doing the job 
But once he got the job, of course, all of those things like a magic act was pulled completely away from him. But he still tried to work with what he could, even to the extent that, like, this movie is featured around three girls on vacation in Spain. Uh, and they're at a language school, though. Well, they're at a they're, language they're, they're... school, but they're going on vacation from their language school. But it centers around being in Spain. The production crew of the company wanted them to fucking shoot it in Austria, which is, you know, there was just so much stuff that Franco was promised. They told him that Pink Floyd was going to do the soundtrack. I don't know why he believed that, but Pink Floyd certainly didn't do the soundtrack. To uh, Franco actually hated it. Although I do it. like the soundtrack of the film. It's got these, like, like whiny guitar riffs throughout the whole thing. And, uh, and a good amount of disco, which I'm always into. Yeah, I deeply enjoyed the soundtrack and was somewhat disappointed to find out that Franco himself did not and found it one of the more annoying things. And he kind it's of... one of his best soundtracks, though. God! Well, they insisted on a lot of nudity and a lot of sex, and he wanted to do something a little bit more comedic. So he had tried and attempted to make the movie slightly more comedic, which I think is why it kind of plays off like a really bad Spanish soap opera. And there's a lot of tricks with shadows. There's a scene where... Uh, you know, you think somebody's about to come into the house and there's this Michael Myers-esque shape outside and she swings the door open and it's a little boy selling candy. There's a whole cat gag, which is, you know, you, you always get the cat gag where it comes in or jumps at you meowing, <coughs> and, you know, screams or whatever. And a lot of them are just kind of weird, basic comedy gags that don't really follow suit into it. And I feel well, that's... that gets to the point of what this film is. It's it's Franco's foray into slasher films and then somewhat Giallo, but for slasher films were very popular at this Giallo time. only in the sense that it's a black glove killer. But I think all of you know my my whole thing right there is pretty much why this movie turned out the way it did, because he wasn't happy with it. He knew he was being jerked around. So it's definitely lackadaisical from a standpoint of some of his more dramatic work or more experimental work because his, as a camera operator, as a director, as somebody with a style and vision, he was pretty sharp and he had some really unique uh, ways of handling the camera and most of them just aren't featured at all. There's nothing I feel specifically trademarked to, to Franco in Well, he, Blood zooms. Moon, that's his big trademark is zooming and a lot of rack focus to Bush, which there isn't a whole lot of zooming in on pubic hairs on, on, uh, on a woman. Um, he leaves that out on this one, but he makes up for it in plenty of other movies. But overall, like, just Franco has no affinity for slasher films. He doesn't like slasher films. He didn't care for slasher films. He wasn't. It's really evident into... that it's not his jive, too. I mean, it really shows up. It it feels while you're watching this. It that feels he's awkward. Bored. The entire movie feels awkward. Like somebody's just not comfortable of making this film that they're currently making. Yeah, he feels bored by making it almost, and it it really conveys how the cameras operated. A lot of the acting is almost inappropriate. That. There are scenes where it's supposed to be a really horrible argument, but somebody's just kind of smiling throughout all of it. And I know it probably is a language thing, but that truly comes down to the director saying, fucking stop smiling. This is a really awful argument. And then once you get to the old, you know, twist at the ending, it's not that you didn't see it coming, but you just kind of don't care. And then you feel bad. And that's not really how you want to be left in a situation like this, feeling bad for anyone. Well, speaking, I mean, speaking of it, you know, uh, the acting and stuff, the dubbing is fucking atrocious. This is some of the worst European dubbing of a horror film I've ever seen. I mean, it's kind of the like in Italian films, it's always the same in them. It might not be great, but it's kind of the same voices and stuff. These voices don't particularly match, and they're all very uh, tuned incredibly loud over the rest of the soundtrack. So all the dialogue is just kind of like blasting the speakers to to their like nth degree before they're about to pop the dialogue so loud and um but 
just getting into the general plot, it's a slasher plot. There's a guy with a disfigured Incredibly face. similar to the last movie we just discussed. Who is, uh, yeah, it's, they're all basically, it's a fucking inheritance scheme again. And he kills a woman wearing a Mickey Mouse mask, which I'm pretty positive Disney in no way would allow at this point. Um, because he's, a, you know, he's a sex freak. He's, he's uh, the fucking weirdo. It's Miguel the Weirdo. And he does some time in the mental institution well, board, gets out. You've and left out a- one somewhat specific thing. Right before this murder happens, it's led to believe that he has sex with his sister. And oh, yeah, there's is, an incest angle, definitely. Yeah, so he, again, similar to Milligan, there's an incest angle. But So he has sex with his sister, and then it turns him into you know a super horny rage, and he goes to the party where he takes the mask and blah, blah, blah. But the, the sister fucking part is sort of integral to the rest of the story. And it, it becomes kind of a black glove killer killing women on this vacation from this language school. And um, some of the... Uh, Deaths in it are incredibly violent, and some of them. I think one of the biggest problems of what got it banned was the scene where um, a woman gets stabbed in the back, and she's topless, and the knife blade sticks out of her nipple, and that is blood on breasts, which is a big no, 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 according to the uh, the BBFC at that time, sexualized violence as as they see it, because women's a woman's breast is automatically deemed sexual. It's not just a piece of anatomy. No, it's no, that's sexual anatomy. Somebody's gonna get turned on by that. And it's violence and a turn on at the same time. We gotta we gotta get that out of here. But I think also another big scene is the um, it's the quintessential scene for the film. It's the film. It's the scene that the film is advertising around, where a um, Franco's woman least favorite is scene. Um, tied to a marble block and fed through a kind of a sawmill to cut marble, and it cuts her head off. And it is an incredibly violent scene. It's an obvious mannequin. The special effect is not great on it, and it's fairly bloody. Um, so he did know how to shoot violence. I just don't think he cared to shoot violence particularly. And that's, that's the big murders in this movie. I mean, there are a lot of murders in it, but those are the two that I think are probably the most objectionable, probably the most violent in the well, film. Well, I think you've got the ending. You've got the uh, spoiler alert here for people that haven't seen Bloody Moon. Well, we don't have to say what happened, who it is, but somebody gets stabbed through the throat and survives it. And that turns into a pretty ghastly scenario. And I think it was a household tool. I don't think it was a knife. Well, there's hedge clippers being used um, as, you know, like an impetus for violence coming like throughout the film. Um, There are different gardening tools being used. So that's always a problem in uh, the UK at that that time and place. But overall, like this film, I like it better than I like the Milligan film. I still think it's a fucking train wreck. It's not a very good movie, but you can find pleasure. It is funny. The uh, the dubbing does make it funny. The characters are kind of funny. Like Inga's a complete total cunt, um, but she's kind of hilarious throughout the film of just how like abrasive her character is. Um, and the characters the, that's the thing that does make it work is kind of how inept it is in a lot of ways. And not all Franco's fault. A lot of it's the producer's fault. A lot of I mean I'm pretty sure they just took it away from him and just said more tits, more violence, and that's all we care about. Yeah. And he didn't care if they took it away. So I think it's a kind of a perfect uh, train wreck of a film where just a bunch of different departments are not like the left hand isn't talking to the right one. So a lot of this stuff isn't getting pulled off to, to the degree it should be. But that's also the film's charm, and that's the positive of it. That's where a lot of the problems come from is they were jerking him off. They were promising him the greatest special effects guy from L.A., and when it was time for him to show up, oh, he's working on a movie in Chicago. We're sorry. 
you know, he's promised more money. It's it's tied up. It's coming to you, but you got to go shoot in Austria. And then it just turns into arguing and trying to get things done. He couldn't stand the soundtrack. He just didn't enjoy what was happening with it. The the guy had a completely different vision and it didn't fit anything that he wanted to do. So I think truly, you know, what you said is what happened that he kind of he gave up and it, it's getting he got paid the product. And that's all he cared about. It's just like, I'll do it. And here, here's your footage. I'm out. Well, he probably was working on three other things while this was going on, too, because the man just had a great talent of being able to to get products out there and get things done. And it's kind of a reversal of what we were talking about with Andy Milligan, because all the kitsch, all the tacky nature of it. You know, you go into a Milligan movie thinking something like Ed Wood or even something deranged like John Waters, and it's absolutely not that way. And unfortunately, the kitsch doesn't give it any everlasting charm but something like bloody moon is full-on kitsch it's the fact that it's badly dubbed it's so cheesy the characters are all ridiculous the nudity is just extreme the soundtrack is constantly blaring with the wah-wah guitar and everything about it is just a stereotypical and you know it's it almost seems like an american movie trying to be spanish like you know a a kitsch funny (laughs) tribute to you know giallo well, it's interesting you say that because if you go into European cinema in the 80s and when people were trying to make slasher films, when slasher films got really popular, and you look at what the Italians did and you look at like what the Spanish did, the French did, they all did it really weird and wrong. There's nothing like an American slasher film to really get that formula correct for how that works. And when Europe gets involved, like um, uh, Ruggiero Diodato's uh, Body Count, that movie is so fucking awkward, and we know the man can direct. He made Cannibal fucking Holocaust. He made House uh, on the Edge of the Park. You know he knows how to direct, and you give him a typical slasher plot. It just ends up being fucking weird and wacky, and it just doesn't know how to get that Americana. It seems like they're laying it on incredibly thick, too. To, like, well, this is what the Americans like in a slasher film. So it just it feels really weird. It feels like a, an android pretending to be human almost. And that's really what... like bloody moon feels like it feels like somebody who isn't one thing trying to be another thing like just it's just awkward well it's got that copy of a copy feel a xerox feel to it and that's what i mean it seems like a movie that you know a recent scare i'll put that in there because that's what the americans do well you've got that um canadian giallo film the the editor i believe it was called which Mm -hmm. it's a very strong film it's a pretty great tribute to giallo but it's very obvious it's not an italian giallo film and this watching it you know you could easily trick someone and tell them you know this is by woody allen i don't know that's not too believable but um you know it's just got a very goofy uh parody feel to it and it's funny to find out that franco with intent wanted to have sort of a comedic value to to what this movie was just because he was unhappy with it and that was truly how i i've always taken it that it's just unnecessarily funny the characters are all completely unrealistic the dialogue is i don't know if it's the dub or the translation it's ludicrous and the delivery of the dialogue i think yeah it's bizarre realistic i mean it's just very it's not even like a play it doesn't have any format outside of almost a parody to me but the violence is hyper it's great i love the beheading scene i I love one of the deaths toward the ending of the movie if you've not seen this try not to spoil it too much as we usually do uh there's uh, it's fun i think that's and it's such a shitty way to review something it's fun but it's nothing more to be had with something like this i would say that would be my review as well it's I don't like the film. It's not that I don't. It's like it's a shit movie. It's like it's poorly made. But watching it, I do have fun watching it. I mean, when the kid gets hit by the car, 
That does make me oh, laugh. Oh, yeah. I wasn't expecting that. That's a hysterical scene. He survives, and you're rooting for him, and then he gets nailed by a car and is all crumpled on the street. No, that is fairly hysterical. And, it, yeah, it's not— It's just also awkward, and that's yeah. what makes it fun. It's just It just feels very awkward, and, like, nobody is particularly comfortable with anything that they're doing. And he had some. Uh, he had a, an all-right actress. Uh, I believe Olivia Pascal's one— um, requirement is that she wanted to be kind of taken serious, that she'd done a lot of German slashers and giallos and things like that and wanted to not be nude, which Franco had no problem with because they had plenty of other chicks that were willing to get you know nude for it. But touching upon something he said a little while ago, it is unique all the massive differences between at the, you know the same era, Americans, Germans, Italians, the Spanish, the French, everyone had a lot of the similarities going on. And the recipe to the American slasher definitely... Uh, has a hand from giallo and Italian suspense films, but there is something absolutely unique of how you know we did it in the United States. And sure, Sean S. Cunningham definitely ripped off Bava. Uh, the Friday the Thirteenth series, like the first three, really rips off one specific film, Bay of Blood. But it's the way it was handled, the way it was recreated, the intensity, and just. I don't know. A big difference is the language barrier, and I think that's something that when our style is replicated elsewhere, things are just caught very bizarrely. Uh, like, for instance, I've been watching some Spanish... Spanish? Sp Spanish. I've been watching... that. I don't know why I said it that way. Uh, I've been watching some Spanish giallos, or gialli, and I was watching one called The Killer is One of Thirteen, and the word dude... This is a 1973 movie. The word dude was used in almost every scene. Every single character has to say dude, and it's, you know, oh, well, Americans say that, so we got to really dump it on. we got to get the sauce as heavy as possible. And then uh, most of the time, the calculations for, you know, really what makes violence frightening and exciting with American slashers is always missed by just a fraction. You know, the timing is off, the, the death is off, but, you know, again, most of... What made American slashers was borrowing from the Italian giallo. So the weird mix of these things is really interesting. What the Americans changed in the slasher genre, and I don't think they did this on purpose. I think it just kind of went in that direction is with giallo, you had a lot of faceless killers and a murder mystery. And when you like imported that to America, it started out like that. But then it became more about the, the, like the killer and what the story of the killer was and making the killer some sort of iconic thing or some sort of monster or a zombie or, you know, it was just, it, the killer itself was interesting. And most um, Italian and European, like, slasher copy films, they're not interested in the killer at all. They, like, still like to focus on the characters. And, like, in any American slasher film, no one gives a shit about the characters particularly. It's not they never particularly try to make their those characters that interesting. They focus so heavily on who is doing the killing, and that's really why I think like the Europeans missed throughout the, like you know the later '80s in making slasher films. Like you know, not like '88, but more like you know '83, '84 when the slasher boom was like hitting its apex. It was just they didn't understand that the what makes a slasher film special is devoting some crazy fucking story to your uh, to your killer and not just some sort of plot by the killer, not making it a, a normal human who's trying to get something, like trying to get an inheritance or you know, all this kind of Scooby-Doo nonsense. So the, like, the Americans dispatched that and went straight to just guys in hockey masks and weird cannibals and shit, and that's what makes those films interesting. And I just don't think the Europeans 
see that. They want to focus more on character and the uh, the protagonist, which is different flavor. I'm not saying it's a bad flavor. It's just it's just different. Well, there's something of intrigue and mystery with a, a character as innocent as someone like Leatherface. And I, I say innocent because there's nothing really surrounding him. All you have is his childlike demeanor and the fact that he may or may not be a cannibal, but is definitely killing people with a chainsaw. But there's nothing to it outside of your imagination. And, of course, you've got the uh, the following sequels that, I guess, lead into who Leatherface is. But just being able to create something like that, just being able to have a horrific King Kong-style monster is something that I think adds to the imagination behind things. And when you have a movie like uh, like Dario Argento's uh, Mother of Tears trilogy, it, it's got a lot of the same characteristics of, of something like Leatherface or Jason or Pinhead. It's got this mythos behind what these witches are, but you know, even as you get to the third movie, Mother of Tears, it's just so diluted, and, and from Suspiria onward, it just seems to lose track because so much focus was put into, I don't feel replicating anything American whatsoever, but following through with what is popular in that overly in-depth character style. Well, if you get into even something like Scream, the reasons, one of the things that has set Scream apart, because essentially Scream is just another giallo film. It's another murder mystery, who's doing the killing, and all of the Scream movies are like that. Who's going to be the killer at the end? And it really doesn't matter. You don't care who the can You barely remember who the killers are, but what did they consistently have the killer had a costume that they like had in every single film. Ghostface has become an iconic um, horror icon, hence by the title iconic. But when you have that, you have something to like graft onto. You have something that fans will embrace and buy T-shirts of. Just a faceless killer does nothing. No one remembers those films because it's just another human who gives a shit. But when you have something, even just a, just a Halloween mask, if you have something to make the killer a little bit more interesting, it will continue to be like the, the stuck in people's imaginations and their iconography. Because I'm no fan of the Scream series, and I cannot believe the Ghostface, um, the Ghostface logo. I say that at this it's point. It's everywhere. It's everywhere, and people love Scream, and I and like. But they're just essentially just dumb murder mysteries. Yeah, but I mean, Ghostface. It's like it's Ghostface has been like six different people, so it's not even like a guy. It's not Leatherface. It's just a costume that people wear. But people, you know, they've taken that into uh, making T-shirts and all other kinds of uh, you know bullshit out of all different kinds of products. Because in America, more than anything, what do we know? Marketing, and that's what we do. We market shit in Europe. They don't give a fuck about marketing. Well, it's like the debacle with Halloween. The entire idea is the series revolving around events happening on Halloween, but people got instantly attached to that mask. They got attached to Michael Myers. He's killed off in the second movie pretty sufficiently, and finally Carpenter gets to kind of get this dream come true and allow this series to grow, and people balked. It's still—it's even weird with, with Joe Bob whenever it's brought up Halloween 3 that there are people that, just for the sake of loving and having their fandom, have to insult it to where— I don't, it's not even a matter of trying to be popular— Halloween 3 season of The Witch is the best in the series. It's the greatest written. It's the greatest acted. It's not just because I love Tom Atkins. Just fuck off. I'm, and I guess we'll it's, piss off. A lot of it's just because it's weird and has different ideas. A faceless killer is not that interesting. And we can see that through as many Halloween movies as they made. I've seen all the Halloween movies. And I'm not a big Multiple fan times. of— times. 
many of them because it's just the same goddamn thing over and over again. A guy in a Shatner mask, which is now known as a Michael Myers mask, and he's just killing people. And they've tried to put a bunch of stories in a cult. Uh, it's something, all this other shit, and none of it ever works because no one wants that. They just want this faceless dude who doesn't have a motive killing people, and that's what they're interesting. I don't get it. I personally don't get it at all. I'm more of a Friday Thirteenth fan because you do have really stupid shit. I even like uh, Jason Goes to Hell. You put all this weird demon shit on it. Fine, I don't care. The series has gone fucking nuts. But everyone, everybody wants to keep taking it back to this thing of, no, you don't know anything about him, and that's what's scary. What's scary is he's just a regular person who just has the affinity to kill. It's like, well, go watch. Like, I just don't find that interesting. Well, it's I guess you pissed off all the Scream fans, so I'll just go ahead and piss off all the Halloween fans. The first movie isn't that interesting. I think what makes it remarkable is its use of Steadicam. It's well-made. Yeah. It's, That's it's what got, makes it remarkable. It's a well-made movie. Some of the first amazing use of Steadicam next to The Shining, and it's it's very great for its time period, but for all intents and purposes, it's pretty boring, and the it's a giallo. I mean, it's, it's just like you referenced with Scream. All of these movies are the same formula, and when you accentuate it and keep adding to it and adding to it and adding to it and then retconning it, it's, it's the cult of Thorn. He's just crazy. He can't be killed. He's going for his psychic niece. I don't under. It's not the point that you don't even understand anymore. It's become so diluted and so watered down. It's just boring, and it was boring from the start. So what you've done is you've essentially made nine more boring things when you could have just. And I'm just going to defend Carpenter and the idea here. You could have just done something else scary that happened in Haddonfield on Halloween and kept running with it. And personally, that doesn't sell. That's not marketing. That's not how the way the world works. But, you know, uh, Carpenter is very on board with the new Halloweens now and finishing it. And I'm not trying to put words in his mouth, but I think the most interesting thing uh, for Carpenter about these new Halloween movies is the profit that he gets out of it. It's the paycheck he gets in the mail. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't fucking care. He's getting something out of this. Jamie Lee Curtis, I don't think, is... Uh, somebody that's openly hated horror films her entire career, I I don't think she gives a shit. I mean, she's not poor. She's made a great deal of money slinging yogurt for the past seven or eight years, but still, the heart isn't involved. I will tell you this much. On Twitter, like a couple weeks ago, there was, uh, like, all all the people involved, um, Jason Blum, they were all like, Jamie Lee Curtis, they are all live-tweeting watching the, the, the most recent Halloween film. And John Carpenter was involved, too. And all of John Carpenter's responses, and he only had like maybe 15, were all like four-word sentences. To see how interested he was in doing this with people and interested in talking about Halloween at all, it's like, hey, thanks. I still think that's remarkable for Carpenter to put that effort into it. And I don't mean to be insulting in in any means toward what's going on with the Halloween series, but I don't think there's any heart in it. And uh, so I don't think like who cares? It's just more Halloween. It's this. Well, Jamie Lee's back. All right. It's the same fucking story they've been doing for 40 years. I don't care. Here's where I'm going to piss people off here. But I don't think as much heart was put into the first Halloween movie as people like to think there there were. You know, he had an idea with a holiday. He had seen something else and knew what he wanted to do. And the movie came to fruition and it happened. And he, uh, look at his career from where he worked. He obviously moved on and had other ideas, and we've brought this up many, many times before, but one thing that's very clear with John Carpenter is this guy has just wanted to make a Sam Peckinpah, John Ford-style Western his entire life. And all of his movies essentially are Assault on Precinct 13, um, 
Escape from L.A., Escape from New York, Big Trouble in Little China, The Thing, uh, everything can center to the man with no name, the man in black, or the mystery. You know, uh, getting a little bit off subject here. But, you know, the first Halloween movie wasn't I, one of those pivotal heart big things with Carpenter. They put out a movie. No, you know what I would call movie. Halloween for John Carpenter? An incredibly expensive demo reel. He just wanted yeah. to show people what he could do, and that's what he did. And then he got other jobs from it. And I think that's the extent of how much he cares about Halloween. It's like, yeah, I did that, but it was really to show how I could use a camera because I wanted to make other stuff. And there's no harm in that. I mean, looking at his career, when, when we talk about John Carpenter, when he's brought up to me, Halloween is never one of my, my oh, he did this. And it's not at fault to it because I'm a fan. And, uh, you know, you were, you know, discussing and bringing up that Jason is where your kind of go-to is. You love the Friday the 13th series. I'm even more into a sloppier destitute series. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre will always take my heart, and Toby Hooper will always be probably my one of my biggest, biggest heroes in the world. I, I absolutely love the man. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, it's kind of trash. Part 3, it definitely is trash. 4, the fucking Kim Hinkle product? Oh, Oh my god, Next Generation is one of the dumbest things ever created. I still kind of have a strange love for it, even the remakes, uh, and I strongly don't agree with Darcy the Male Girl. The remakes are equally trash. The first movie, on the other hand, is, uh, The first movie is a classic, and I would say the second movie is, it's trash-y. I think it's nuts. I think it's crazy. I think it's got a lot of weird loose ends that it didn't know what to do with, but that's a lot of its charm. I really enjoy, I love Texas Chainsaw Massacre too, because it is just like, well, you can't go the same direction you went to with the first one. Let's take it in a completely new, weird fucking comedy direction. And I enjoy that about too. But like the rest of the Texas Chainsaw movies are not very good. Three on are just like, eh, it's a property now. Three has some kitsch aspects to it that you can find some love for, but and I'll defend this. I think the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of the finest movies ever made, and I think its its oh, yeah. statement, its fear, its creation, everything about it puts it up there with Akira Kurosawa and Fellini and all these big film school $2 names that you know, and it, fucking Toby Hooper, a Dr. Pepper fiend from Texas loaded up on weed and cigarettes, made this movie in 150 million degree heat with a bunch of rotting meat and no actors, and it's amazing. It, it will stand the test of time. It will always be horrifying it will always be mesmerizing and then you immediately go into the sequel and it's like who fucking called laurel and hardy but i still i i love it i i'm the lord of the harvest it's great it's just an absolutely different it's direction insane i'm the lord of the harvest who's that yeah, but it's also a sign of the times that this is, is it's similar to what happened with Franco and Bloody Moon. A lot of the ideas, a lot of the things that Hooper wanted to do were just you don't get to do what you want. You get this image in your head that these are these masters of horror and they made some of the terror, most terrorizing, greatest movies I've ever heard of. Most of the time, these guys outside of their first picture that gave them this legendary status they never got to do it their way. They always had to butt heads with studios. They never got the funding. And, and that's really sort of the problem, especially with American horror history, is these guys are catapulted to fame, even like Wes Craven. They make 
amazing products, Last House on the Left, uh, The Hills Have Eyes, and then they start getting jammed into this and forced into certain things, and you've got 50 producers telling you you need more nudity, you need more claws, you, you need get more deadly whatever. friend. Yeah, you get just which I like, but it's it's a terrible movie. But it's got some like some stuff in it. I think it's like kind of brilliant and stupid and over the top, which I can get into. But he didn't want to put any of that stuff in there. He really wanted to make an incredibly dry movie, and the studio wouldn't let him. I think the studio saved Deadly Friend, but that's, I mean, that's beside the point of what you're talking about. Well, let's about. use Hooper. I mean, because let's look at the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and then look at Life Force. Something bad happened somewhere, and it wasn't incompetency. It's not like he's Andy Milligan. He got fucked over and over and over again, and it's the same tragic story as George Romero. It doesn't matter what the previous product was. Romero put out Dawn of the Dead, and it just still wasn't good enough. Now, uh, box sets for this movie sell for hundreds and hundreds of dollars. It's one of the most legendary known films that will always stand the test of time. It's celebrated and loved, but it wasn't good enough when he put it out. Nothing any of these guys do. Uh, Fulci, Franco, Milligan. Milligan worked kind of on a different scale. He definitely had producers and people involved in the 70s and 80s, but it was nowhere near the mass production as the Italians and Americans were doing so. But everyone had to face a, 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 a nameless studio douchebag that told them that they were never good enough. So you keep doing shit until life force. And you just <laughs> you deal with it. You know, you ah, whatever. I like life force. It's bad. Oh, I like Life Force. I mean, I'm not I'm not trying <laughs> to whip the movie, but it's definitely not what Toby Hooper had in his mind when he set out to make space vampires, I think. <laughs> I could be, I don't know. I can't speak Let, for Toby, but still. Let's um let's get back to Bloody Moon and we'll uh, for the uh, the inane facts of Bloody Moon. The uh the Video you're looking for is the intralight version of it, the big box with the uh, woman and a uh, circular saw blade on the cover and blood splashing everywhere. And I found it on uh, UK eBay for 93 euros right now, so it's uh, over a hundred dollars American. And uh, in the book Art of the Nasty, passed for theatrical distribution by the BBFC in a cut X-rated version in 19. 19- in January 1982, I skipped the line. An uncut version was released on tape just prior to this in November 1981. It was later replaced with the X-rated version, initially passed 18 for video with cuts totaling 1 minute and 20 seconds, and finally granted an uncut certificate in November of 2008. So you can get Bloody Moon on a Blu-ray or a DVD in the UK now that is uncut finally, because it's... Fairly harmless, I would say. I mean, some sexualized violence, kind of, if you can call it that, maybe, but uh, overall, I think it's maybe a at the pretty beginning. harmless slasher film. I think uh, the dubious nature of incest is probably one of the big qualms with the movie, too, and of course the scenes of violence that you pointed out. But outside of that, I, I mean, it's not incredibly harmless, but it's still, it's more goofy than anything else. It's more well, of a if you get to ride. a lot of movies on this list, and ones we'll be getting into in the next, like, very soon in the next few weeks... I can definitely see because those can be objectionable to a lot of people. Yeah, There's a lot of sense. crazy shit going on and things that people weren't sure that were real and what's fake and all this different dealing with like very taboo subjects, like extremely taboo subjects. And when you just get to like some really kind of goofy murders and so, like an incest angle and all that, how do you take any of that? Particular, that's what, what I mean by harmless. It's not like it's not going to scar you for life like some of the films that ended up on the video nasties list. Cause some of them are incredibly over the top and I get why people like 
if you, when we get into cannibal ferox, sure, you cut a guy's dick off and show it. Yeah, you're probably going to have some objections. You have a mannequin get cut up by a large uh, circular saw blade that is not even a convincing effect. Why do you even care? I mean, it's that it's that's what I mean by harmless. And taking it even from Bloody Moon back to Andy Milligan, the fact that this movie's on any form of ban list outside of the list being movies you just shouldn't watch because they're really poorly made is laughable. I mean, there's no... Ridiculous. There's no threat of violence coming from the ghastly ones at all. The only threat of violence is possibly to yourself by trying to scratch your own eyes out to finish it, or <laughs> maybe you drank too much to get through it. I got violent on uh, my TV and violent on the stop button for uh, for uh, blood rights. It just, I, I couldn't get through it, dude. I tried. I just tried and tried, and I just got so bored. I went the extra mile this week because I just was kind of fascinated by Andy Milligan. And like I said earlier, there's a very bizarre charm to just his insanity and his chaotic energy. So I ended up watching a couple of his features, and I watched his first short film, which while we're plugging companies, I think I said you might be able to find it from Vinegar Syndrome. But if you're looking, what for about a... your uh, film terrorist hypothesis you're trying to throw around? I yeah, that's de- I definitely think he is to a T of the definition of, of of a terrorist. What that is, and he it's like something that John Waters is given like the the Pope of Trash kind of moniker. I think Andy Milligan, with intent, you know, knowing with his budgets and knowing he was shooting erratically and knowing using a newsreel camera was just not. I mean, because even the camera he used it didn't didn't have a sight. You couldn't see out of it, so you just had to blindly point it into a direction and hope to God you were capturing something. So that really explains a lot of his framing issues, especially with his non-35 films. Anything on 16mm was done with a newsreel camera. But the guy just went into this, in my theory, with the idea of being as disruptive as humanly possible, knowing that his pictures would get three billings at a drive-in, knowing that he was going to get seen. And throughout the South and upward... uh, into places like Michigan and Massachusetts, he was shown three billings, three of his movies a night. Uh, he stayed in the circuit from the late 60s up until around his death when drive-ins started shutting down and Grindhouse Theater started shutting down. He had an idea behind it, and it, it just seems to me so chaotic that it's just it's terrorism. It's not the fact that his movies are completely offable is why I'm using it uh, that word in the sense. It's the fact that I think he, with intent, came out to insult your senses. You're visually, uh, in any way he could, any way that he could affect you, whether it be something as creepy as incest or pushing, uh, like in Vapors, the, the strange meeting in a bathhouse, this just very sleazy, cruising kind of gay vibe that would make people uncomfortable knowing that's what he, especially for the time period, the, the early 60s, late 50s, he wanted to assault your senses. Andy Milligan is a film terrorist. <laughs> oh, that's a way of putting it, I guess. I just look at it as a dude who just got in way over his head and was trying to make art. And I am no, like I'm a I'm a critic, so I do judge art. But I, as far as calling something art not art, that's not for me to decide. There are plenty of people who find um, validity in trash as art. There's a lot of art I don't like. So I'm not saying I'm the be-all and end-all. I just personally don't like Andy Milligan movies. They just don't do a goddamn thing for me. They do things for other people. I just I have a hard time seeing the art in them, though, other than the man behind it. Per- like that's, that's what I have is just, okay, Andy Milligan's crazy. His story's crazy. But his final product, though, is just it's not something I want to get involved in. It's just not that interesting. 
Well, it's like when somebody looks at a Monet painting and thinks it's just really blurry, and then you tell them, oh, he was blind. They suddenly get it. So there's kind of this addition with Andy Ooh. Milligan. You watch how Milligan and is. Monet in the same sentence. Way to go, Hank. I'm definitely pushing for this one, but it, I think there's a similarity <laughs> that you can say, look how bad this is. Oh, but he was absolutely batshit insane. So you get that same sort of thing like, oh, I, I have a different appreciation for it now. But it's very hard to defend Andy Milligan, and I don't think I, at this point I've really read anyone that goes into it with he's a genius, he's a god. I, I still I've not read the the Ghastly Ones book, but there has to be I don't know. There's we're talking about him. I mean, we've decided to do this. People still talk about him. People still watch his movies. So there has to be something. There has to be. Well, some he did piss some value. people off, and that's usually what we get involved in. Is when people get pissed, we want to know why. So there is always Andy Milligan. Andy Milligan's forever. Andy Milligan lives. Um, so check his movies out. It's definitely with, I think this is the first time we've ever strongly cautioned the audience to be careful going into <laughs> a movie. And it's not because it's offensive or raw or horrible, but it is also all of those things. It's offensive. It's raw. It's horrible. It's incompetent. It's, it's Andy Milligan. Well, if you look at the list that we've gone through so far, there's only been one like unabridged, genius masterpiece like really good movie on there and that is bay of blood and the rest of it has been a lot of like eh, your own risk this one's not very good and but you know that we'll be picking some up here along the way that are a lot better films that are classics but a lot of the stuff that got on the video nasty's uh list were considered just to be trash anyway so why even bother with them at all why bother having them in the video shops and yeah some of this shit i kind of have to agree with it but that was the filmmaker itself why did you bother making this it's like we discussed and brought up with axe the reason that movie was made is the filmmaker just really wanted to make a movie so a lot of the times that's what you're dealing with here there's no other backing outside of some people got together and they made a movie and then you've got something like cannibal holocaust which we'll be getting to in a couple months that is incredibly political it's a stab at the united states it's all about vietnam era politics and it's grisly uh, the animal abuse in that movie is specifically to show how grisly and careless Americans are. And the movie is banned, hated. It's People won't watch it because of that. But God damn it, if Cannibal Holocaust doesn't have one of the greatest messages of all time. And again, it's a it's a beautiful, great movie. Rigaro Diodato is, in some instances, a genius behind a camera. But then you watch something like the Christmas movie with David Hess you'd brought up. Ugh. Rough. No, it's not Christmas. Oh, is it Christmas? I think Body it was, count? I, th I thought it was supposed to be Christmas. Oh, it's cold. You might be thinking of To All Good Night, which David has directed. That's the Santa Claus one. No, the, I'm thinking of the one where it starts with him yelling at the TV. It's a football game. That's the deal. Oh, yeah, one. that's that's in it, but I, I don't consider it a Christmas horror film. I guess I just know, because it's snowing be and it's – or they filmed in a cold location, I assume, it, that it was – It's a campground that, yeah, it's like fall and people are wearing like – jackets and shit definitely it's cold weather films maybe we'll get into that that'll be one of our great double feature episodes movies that take place in the cold yeah what about my friday the 13th that takes place in snow okay that's kind of interesting why are people still trying to like really try to get this friday the 13th and snow movie you know what doesn't happen in snow camp so what's the fucking point of jason being in the snow the incessant needs for constant sequels is something that's somewhat damning. Like, on one hand, yeah, sure, I'd like to see Robert England return as Freddy Krueger, but on the other hand, goddamn, like, 
Maybe if we could have just got him some other roles, it's like Bruce Campbell syndrome. Every time the guy tried to do something else, all they wanted was Ash, and so he finally gets to be Ash again, and they fucking cancel it. So uh, what's the deal here? Everybody wants something, but you never get to see what you you never get what you see want. I guess it seems. Yeah, I mean it's that's the nature of film, and I'm okay with it because there's a lot of people who are going to always complain about studio interference and release the Snyder cut uh, just what's more interesting is like when all this shit gets funky and gets messed up you weren't making the fucking witch here you were making a justice league movie chances are the Snyder version is no better it might be slightly better but who gives a shit it's still not gonna be great it's still gonna be just like here here's a big budget movie that's overly dark and overly mournful the entire time i who how interesting superman's is, dead for most of the movie all this garbage is why i don't buy into comic book movies and it's like i don't have anything personal against marvel studios or dc or any of these big budget places but i don't think any of it has soul i mean i we just discussed this i like james gunn i've seen the guardian of the galaxy movies because i like james gunn but still I don't believe, and as a critic, I don't believe there's heart put into this. I don't believe that these movies are made for anything outside of selling seats, popcorn, and merchandise. And at this point, with theaters, you know, pretty much dying, it's just merchandise. It's just selling more soulless Star Wars toys to a new generation. It doesn't have any point. It doesn't matter to the extent that characters just get killed off and die, and now they get retconned and brought back with different actors. Nothing, there's no care to any of it and it's not you who know, gives a shit about canon at this point people get brought back remakes get made who, like the character's not dead Han Solo's not dead they made a fucking prequel movie with him like years later like a couple years later Darth who gives Maul a shit got his fucking legs cut off and fell down like a hundred foot tunnel I've seen that one one of the few Star Wars movies I've seen I'm thinking of getting metal legs it's a risky operation but it'll be worth it nope He's got robot legs now. It's just that simple. Nothing goddamn matters, and it's not like I'm trying to bitch about retconning and changing things up. I don't give a fuck. Write whatever the hell you want to write and sell yeah, it. That's my whole point. It's just like, I don't care. You want to put out a shitty Joss Whedon Justice League movie? Fine. You want to put out the Zack Snyder version that's not going to be any better? Fine. Why are you all so fucking invested in it? What's the point? I mean, I, I get it. You want to enjoy these heroes that you grew up with, and you want to live through them, and you're watching it, and it gives you some form of strength or some form of happiness but stop fucking bitching about it i'm tired of seeing the hashtag i'm tired of seeing i'm tired of seeing it pop up inherently because i just don't believe these things have a heart put behind them and i'm not trying to say that you know marvel movies should be more like citizen kane fuck no it's not what i goddamn mean i mean jesus christ we we had this entire discourse of the reasons behind bloody moon not being entirely successful and a lot of it being producers and people stepping in and things having to be this way i mean you've brought up before that one of the iron man movies pretty much had no script that they would skype figure out what they're doing and then shoot the scenes that's great that's fine and i don't think that's an insult toward anything but the fact that there is nothing set in stone that it's literally just a paycheck like we got robert downey jr for eight movies so we better fucking use this because we paid him a shit ton of money there's no substantial meaning behind this art and i still firmly believe no matter how watered down it gets how awful it gets how trashy indie can be with you know People like Quentin Tarantino still using the moniker as an independent filmmaker, which is just a laughable lie. I still believe that there is art in film. I mean, and to me, it's still my favorite 
form of intaking art. I just have a passion and an absolute love for it. So when you know you see these nine different Spider-Man movies with a bunch of different actors and all the different stories and nothing matters anymore, it kind of breaks my heart because I just feel like a gatekeeping asshole on one extent, but I just want there to be some passion behind these products. I want there to be more than a new action figure. I want there to be more than selling tickets, and I just don't think people experience film on a level that it deserves anymore, and it doesn't have to do with theaters or, or seeing it in a certain manner. It's just the love and passion put into these products, and like Andy Milligan didn't I don't know, he seemed to put a lot of hate and chaos into his products, and then, like, with Bloody Moon, Franco just got fucked. There was not a lot of effort put into this, but Vampire Lesbos is a, a proper example for an artistic piece from Franco. There is obviously a great deal of emotion, integrity, heart, and soul put behind the visuals and uh, what he was working with for that production. Yeah, and just, I mean, sliding back to the whole Justice League fucking controversy or whatever the hell you want to call it going on right now, no matter People what, whining. no matter how shitty or good the Zack Snyder version of Justice League will be, hit, like people are going to go, oh, God, that was so much better. Was it? Because like, at this point, your like, perception is so clouded that you wanted something for so long. Because, hell, I wanted the, the director's cut of Exorcist 3 forever. And then I finally see generally what it was going to be. I'm like, oh, yeah. shit. That was not as good as what they ended up with because the studio did get involved. And then uh, there's plenty of other films like that where you'll see like some sort of director's cut where it's just like either like Aliens, which I don't uh, I think the director's cut is really good, but all the stuff that they add back into James Cameron's director's cut of Aliens does not change Aliens significantly. It's just extra shit that's thrown in that didn't make or break the movie. Well, I mean, bringing Aliens up is something that brings a different direction into things because that was Cameron. I mean, that was executive decisions, and when he did the director's cut, there's much more from the cutting room floor that could have been used, and he brought in what was a little... It makes the movie a, a bumpier more chaotic ride. It doesn't add or neglect anything. I think the only emotion that's different is you realize that Ripley's daughter had survived to an extent. And But it doesn't significantly... It, it changes her, like, wanting to be a mother to this child slightly, but I can already infer that to what her character is at this point, this motherly instinct kicking in. I don't need to know that she left her daughter. Like, well, okay, it's just padding shit. It's not adding anything to the story. It's just extra shit. Well, especially when all of that's previously established in Alien with Ripley going back for Jonesy. So, I mean, it it's kind of evident with the character that she's still going to do this, that if she's risked her life in space for a cat, she's going to do it for a human child. So, I mean, I just thought that was a good example of using Aliens because Cameron chose and knew what needed to go. And the scenes were fine. They're, they're enjoyable. But then yes. there are, like, Scarface has that massive three-hour cut that just doesn't end, that almost all of it's just dialogue. All of it's just learning more about uh, how sociopathic Tony truly is and how he only cares about money. We That was really understood. I think there is no that, need. Yeah, I that's mean, what I mean. Because, like, in Aliens, right. the theatrical cut of it is... All those things that were cut out didn't mean anything to the overall story because the story that is there is strong enough to not need those things. You put it back in, it doesn't ruin anything, but it doesn't certainly doesn't make it that much better. It doesn't significantly change just everything. It's just like, oh my god, what a revelation! It's like, eh, you can I can watch that version or I can watch the original theatrical version. It doesn't it doesn't particularly bust my balls either way. I just I'm more talking about this whole 
through this era of filmmaking where everybody's just so hype on just one thing or another. And it's just like, trust me, dude, it's not going to matter that much. Well, that's what I mean by bringing up uh, Cameron's decision with the editing and why the Aliens director's cut and why the Aliens theatrical cut is the way it is. I was just saying about Aliens is if your story is strong enough in itself, all this extra shit shouldn't make it that much better or worse when it's cut because your core idea and your core story and your core filmmaking were able to get that through and make it an enjoyable film. When those things are fucked up, no amount of director's cuts, additional scenes are going to fix a goddamn thing. Like uh, we were talking uh, last year about Midsummer, there's a you know, very long director's cut. I would like to see it. I'd like to see these extra scenes, but I don't think it's going to significantly change the film because the film itself I really enjoyed, and I think it's strong enough on what it was when it got released to theaters. All that extra shit is just some you know extra stuff to throw in to spice it up a little bit, but the core story is where it's at, and when that is not running correctly, then who cares if you add a bunch of extra shit? It's not going to fix any of it. That's also why I don't get into TV shows that much because... I just recently watched the first series, uh, the first three seasons, or I guess, I don't know, it's a completely different series now, but Penny Dreadful. And I didn't mind it. I thought it was okay, but there were a lot of episodes that are just like, this is padding. And then I watched, uh, I used to watch Walking Dead. So much of it is just padding. Well, don't you want to know how this character got this way? I don't care. I, if the, it's it's important to the story, like the governor, yeah, that could have deserved some time, but we got no attention to that, but we get a nine-episode arc of somebody just to get their head eaten. That show went uh, just weird. I mean, and I still, I would one day like to watch the entirety of The Walking Dead, but I gave up uh, right around I right can around tell the, you the that, governor. like, as somebody who watched, I think I watched a season and a half, the first season and a half of Lost, and in the second season... They started like they did this thing where they look, like, let's flash back. Oh my fucking God. And I quit watching it at that point. And that's what every goddamn TV series is now, where we have to have a full episode that is out of the chronology of the reg the other episodes where we have to flash back to see where we got to this point. It's like I don't I don't care. I already know this character. I don't care how they fucking got their powers. It's like it's not well, it tells you why they're the way they are. I can infer that from what you've told me so far it's irrelevant move the fucking story along this kind of brings us back to our discussion about uh you know the american slasher and, and the difference between giallo and spanish and all these different stereotypes of of what the slasher was to america and the difference overseas and like i, I used to constantly reference oz and the sopranos and, and the wire and my love of tv and that's kind of where it died out like uh, Oz, The Sopranos, The Wire, unfortunately, shows like that kind of really fucked things up because how detailed they were. Every show at this point is trying to uh, replicate that, is attempting to cash in on how much you fell in love with those characters. And Oz is probably a weak example, but I just I just really loved the show. It was something that made me fall in love with TV dramas. I like Tom Fontana. I'll go out of my way if I see it's something he's produced to watch it just because he cares about characters. And that's now the fault, that these characters, that's all people have. That's all shows are, are characters. The story doesn't matter. The plot doesn't matter. It's just some vacant character that you can somewhat put yourself into. And, you know, even something uh, as soulless, I'll dare say, Sex in the City, that's all it truly was, was just vacant characters that you can somewhat live behind. There's no story. There's no show. 
The Sopranos had a, a point. It wasn't just mafia violence and misogyny and fucking. It was a man struggling with his identity. The whole thing was based on him going to a therapist. It's the struggle. I mean, those are your lead characters, just like Oz. In the very first episode, you're given Miguel Alvarez and uh, Tobias Beecher. For the rest of the show, that's literally the two focal characters. And if you follow the show, it's them that Shakespeareanly gets fucked over and over and over again, physically uh, and with a knife. But I'm rambling. We're I, rambling. Just, we gotta end yeah, this. We're, we didn't think that the, uh, the this show would go as long as it possibly did. I mean, I think we ran out of Milligan and Franco talk. Which I was just bitching about. <laughs> yeah, we, we padded. Well, that's the good thing and convenient with this is we padded the end. I mean, we got all the information out in the first, I think, 40 minutes. And it, I don't want to dissuade anyone from Jess Franco or Andy Milligan. But uh, go with your own warning what you're going to or go at your own risk at what you're going to try and see. Because there is an abundance of crap on both ends of this field. But Franco has some redeemability. He has some uh, extremely beautiful art. I really recommend Vampire Lesbos and Venus and Furs. Uh, I just I don't have any Andy Milligan to uh, throw out there, nor do I have any Franco to suggest. So uh, I don't know. Watch some, figure it out for yourself, because that's what I've been doing for the last 30 years, trying to figure out what Franco movie I actually enjoy, and I've yet to get there. Venus and Furs is probably the most enjoyable. Next week, hopefully, we'll have something we can request everyone to watch. We'll see. You never know with Death by DVD. But I think the ashtray is full and the bottle is empty. We'll be back, as always. in front of a dead studio audience. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced.